we go. Ta-da! I'm on now. <laughs> okay. So maybe help us think about things in a little bit different way. So really the whole crux of this week is I want us to all have a better grasp of what it means to have soul rest and uh, how to have soul rest. And um, really I think that's probably foundational to really just a lot of other things in our Christian experience. You know, if we, we're just going through life with a soul that's agitated and stirred up and can never never find peace and rest and we're always battling depression and, and feeling dejected and all of those things, we're going to have a very difficult time really being used of the Lord uh, to really do the things that He wants us to do. And so I think this is a very important issue. And it's in Matthew chapter 11, last couple of verses there, where Jesus said this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray again. Our Father, we're grateful for the privilege to come into your presence. and We're thankful to be meeting in this building and with this church today. And Lord, I don't think any of us here by, are here by accident. I think we're all here by divine appointment. I believe, Lord, that you have something for us. And I just pray, Lord, that I would uh, have the wisdom and the anointing, Father, to be able to communicate the things that are needful and essential. And that, Lord, our hearts would be open and receptive to your word. Ultimately, Father, we want the Lord Jesus Christ to be the preeminent one in all things. We want you to receive all of the glory and all of the praise. And we want your people to be edified and challenged. Lord, you know the need of every heart here. And Lord, we believe that your word is sufficient to meet whatever those needs may be, as widely varied as they may be. We believe, Lord, that you can meet those needs through your word. So we ask you to do so with complete confidence that you will. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to spend some time here in this hour thinking about a troubled soul. So let me, let me start by kind of painting this scenario and ask a question here. So imagine, imagine that you're sitting before an open fire in the darkness of night. And the fire has kind of begun to burn low. And so probably as we have all done on occasion, you'll reach over and grab a, a long stick or something that's near at hand and you poke it in the glowing embers and maybe turn over the logs to create greater airflow for the purpose of increasing the brightness of the fire, the light, maybe the heat that it's giving off, especially here. And uh, as you do this, the logs and embers send forth sparks, right? So I have a question. Which direction do most of the sparks go? Up, who said, who said up? They win the prize for today. They, they mostly go up, don't they? Stir the fire up and the embers, the sparks, they fly upward, most of them into the night sky. I ask you that question because I want you to look with me for just a minute here in Job chapter 5. So we all agree with that, right? That, that, that's, that's what happens. All things being equal, that's what occurs. Because it's important that we're in agreement on that when we look at a couple of verses here. Job chapter 5 <clears throat> And verse 6, the Bible says, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. So do the sparks fly upward? We've already established that. Yes, they do. And what the Scripture tells us, that just like that happens with absolute certainty, Man's born to trouble. So let me ask you another question. What percentage of men are born of woman? It's not a trick question. All of them, right? A hundred percent. 
I ask you that because I want you to turn to Job 14. Job 14 and verse 1, the Bible says, Man that is born of woman, now, how many men is that true of? Oh, so that means it's true of me, right? That means it's true of you, it's true of all of us. Man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. So Job in this verse basically relates two observations he's, uh, that he has made about men that are born of women, which that means all of us. One is, is that man born of woman is a few days. Are there any objections to that? The older you get, the less objections you'll take to it. I can assure you of that. My dad just this past week celebrated his 81st birthday and my brother and I and our wives and they both, we were all out to dinner and we were talking about him turning 81 and, and um, my brother and I got to talking about how old we were and it was my youngest brother. He's seven years younger than me. I'm, I'll be 60 in a year. And so he was kind of giving me a hard time about that. And I said, I'm not really troubled about that. That doesn't really bother me too much. What really bothers me is that in 21 years, I'll be as old as he is. That's what's really troubling. 21 years doesn't sound like that long ago, especially when I think about the year 2000. And you remember at the end of 1999, there was a big hype that the world was going to come to an end because of Y2K and all the computers were going to go haywire. That was just 22 years ago. When that period of time passes again, I'll be 81 years old, hopefully. Man that's born of woman is a few days. It really is a few days. I mean just a few days. The second observation that he makes is that man that's born of woman is full of trouble. <laughs> Are there any objections to that? Really, if you think about it, life is a series of challenges. There may be times of relative calm and things kind of moving along and not any real hiccups, but life really at the root of it is a series of challenges. And really, if we're just honest about it, every day we're facing challenges of one kind or another. Probably and hopefully most of the time they're relatively small and, and it's relatively easy to manage. But of course, there's other times when we're facing challenges and things come along. Sometimes it's maybe things that we have kind of anticipated. Uh, sometimes, I know for myself, I'm sure it's true of most other people, if you've lived any, any length of time, that sometimes problems and challenges come to you that are totally unexpected. They, they, just, they just come to you right out of the blue. You never saw them coming. And um, boy, that, that can really rattle your cage a little bit and leave you shaking in your boots some. And you know, we face those kinds of things sometimes. Sometimes it's just a, an accumulation of things over the course of a few weeks or a few months. And it's not anything really major, but it's not really small kind of daily things. It's, it's kind of things that are somewhere in between, but over the period of a few weeks or a few months and you have a, a series of those things. And before you know it, you're kind of loaded up and you're burdened down and you can begin to feel a little cast down even. And and uh, the burden can become a little heavy. I dare say that all of us have trouble in our soul this morning. Don't, don't take offense to that or be too defensive about, about it. Because really what I'm saying is, unless everything is perfect in your life, then you do have some trouble in your soul. And I dare say that none of us would venture to make the claim everything is absolutely perfect in my I wouldn't change anything. I could actually probably fill up a page of things I would change. Right? So we all, to one degree or another, have trouble in our soul. It's important to recognize that having trouble in your soul is not the same thing really as having a troubled soul. Think about it. Just because there's trouble in there doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be troubled about it. Those are two really entirely different things. Because my soul only becomes troubled when my trouble darkens my soul. When my trouble dominates my thinking. When my trouble dictates my feelings. When my trouble distorts 
my decisions. You know, by making reference there to um, my, my, uh, my soul and my thinking and my feelings and my decisions, I really made reference to the three components that make up the soul of a man. The intellect, the will, and the emotions. And when whatever trouble we have in our soul begins to impact that part of us, then we're beginning to have a troubled soul. Now it's not just a matter of having some troubling things going on in our life. Now it's a matter that those things are actually troubling us on the inside. And that's ultimately where we run into trouble. There's a verse in Proverbs, you may remember it, it says, out of the heart are the issues of life. In fact, it says to guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Or keep your heart. Keep your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. For years when I read that, the word issues, I always thought about it in the context of issues being like different things you're having to deal with, different what we'd, we'd call them issues. And uh, when I got to studying that a while back, I realized that's really not the case. That word issues there is the idea of something that's springing forth, something that's pouring out. And it kind of reoriented my thinking about something, or maybe solidified my thinking about something. Our whole life doesn't, doesn't really take place out there. It's really taking place in here. And it's, it's pouring forth. It's issuing forth out of our heart. Now, it's not to say that there aren't a lot of things happening out there outside of us, but ultimately the life we're living has to do with what's on the inside and how we're responding to those things that come to us from the outside, whether it be from the physical world or whether it be from the spiritual world. Either one can be true in our lives, and oftentimes both of them are. And so the life that we're living is the result of really not so much what's happening to us as much as how we're responding to the stimuli from the outside. Again, whether it's physical or whether it is spiritual in nature. Are you with me on that? I mean, if, if we can embrace that, that right there tells us that by the grace of God, I have some control over this. I get to manage this in a way that no matter what happens, I can have a good life. Because all of those decisions are being made on the inside. When my trouble controls my life, it is then I can know I have a troubled soul. And I'm sure, again, if you've lived any length of time, you've faced trouble of one sort or another that at least for a period of time dominated you. I have. I'm presuming that you're not too different from me in that regard. But when that happens, let's just be honest enough to say I'm having soul trouble right now. Because unless we're willing to admit that, we'll never get it corrected. We'll never get it right. At some point, we've got to take ownership of that. Of course, the greater danger here is that it can be controlling our life and we're unwilling to admit it. That happens. It's happened in my life before. I remember one time, particularly... It was in relation to bitterness. We'd had some trouble with some, a family, a particular family in the church. It's been like 20 years ago now, and a little over 20 years ago. And it was, it seemed like a betrayal to me. I think it was. I still think that was the case. And I was really disheartening, and it was discouraging. And, um, <laughs> you know, up to that time, I'd preached lots of messages on bitterness. Well, my wife and I at the time, we were walking every morning, and, uh, the path that we were walking in our neighborhood took us right by the house where those people lived. And I couldn't walk by the house without saying something. Somebody, you say amen to that. It's, it's true, I'm just, had to say something. Well, that happened for several weeks. Every time we'd walk down 8th Street, we'd pass their house. And, and my wife, Who's not really all that subtle? Even when she tries to be, she's really not. She said, you're bitter. Shut up. <laughs> you're not going tomorrow morning. You're staying at home. Uh, but it was actually a great favor to me. Because it made me face the reality of it. 
See, a lot of the times we're having things going on in our soul and we don't even want to admit it. The reality is if anybody had asked me the previous day or the week before that, well, are you bitter about this? Are you bitter towards those people? I'd have said, no, of course not. I'm not bitter. But, you know, there's another dirty little secret about that. I wasn't even being honest with myself. The re- that's why when she said it, I knew it. Because I knew it before she said it. But I didn't want to admit it. Because I'm a pastor. And I'm supposed to be spiritual. And I'm not supposed to have these feelings and, and these thoughts. Come on. So no, I'm not bitter. Well, yes, yes you are. This is where we live. We're depressed, cast down, and discouraged, and we claim we don't know why. I don't really intend to draw too sharp of a line here. Obviously, there's a sense in which one could say I have a trouble, I have a troubled soul simply because trouble is in their soul. But that's not really the problem. That kind of a troubled soul is non-critical. It's non-urgent. I would liken it to the common lot of man. It's the spiritual equivalent to the common cold. We all get it and we know we have it. I got trouble in my life. But the kind of trouble soul I'm speaking of this morning is of the acute nature. That is the trouble of soul that would be characterized by sharpness and severity. It's the spiritual equivalent of the worst strain of flu. Maybe a bad case of COVID. You know that. that we got that. It's not just a discomfort, but it's debilitating. Come on. It's what the secular world would often refer to as clinical depression. The Bible describes it as being cast down. You know a good counselor, you want to know who your best counselor is? I'll help you a lot here. Your pastor's probably getting nervous. Your best counselor is your pastor. Because he's going to take you to the Word of God, and he's going to tell you what the Bible says about it. We live in a day where lots of Christians believe their problems are so complex... Their problems are so convoluted that the Bible can't possibly have answers for this. Well, pray tell, what did we do before the modern age came along? Were God's people just languishing in depression and discouragement and unbelief and defeat? I don't think that was the case. In fact, quite to the contrary, I think a lot of those people faced... um, Seriously more difficulty than we do oftentimes, and yet they did it with much grace in their hearts. Come on. Because you know, a good counselor, listen, this is important. A good counselor will not help you discover the reason for your depression, but help you admit the reason for your depression. Because I'm going to say to you, there's nothing to discover here. We know what it is, but we may be ashamed to admit it. I think I can illustrate this, unless people, maybe this has never occurred, possibly. I think it's, this, this idea is preeminently true in marriages. You're going through the day, something doesn't seem quite right with your wife. We'll pick on them, yeah, your wife. You say, what's wrong? Nothing. Okay, well, now I know something's wrong. <laughs> and, but I also know whatever's wrong is she doesn't want to tell me. Or, you know, you might ask somebody, you might ask your wife, what's wrong? Well, I don't know. I really don't know if that's true. Listen, same thing can be true. Listen, okay. <laughs> Just for the sake of honesty, my wife has asked me before, is there anything wrong? And I lied. I said no, when there was. 
but I didn't think it was worth getting into. <laughs> okay, right? There can be lots of reasons why we won't acknowledge something that's true, and we know it's true. I think we've really got to get away from this idea, well, I don't really know what's wrong with me. Listen, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. How can something you don't know be bothering you? You don't know it. Am I like loopy here or something? The only thing that really has the ability to bother me is something that I'm aware of. I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that people know what is wrong, but they don't want to admit what is wrong. Things that you don't know, things that you don't know don't create depression. They can't. How could they? You don't know about it. Secularism in pursuit of the reasons for depression has complicated the issue and left countless people, I mean countless people, even in churches, Christian people, has left them hopeless, helpless, and addicted. And they've really done nothing to deal with the root of the problems. And the reality is, is that they're technically still depressed. It's just being masked by any number of different things. I think the main thing that complicates a depressed spirit <laughs> is the lack of honesty. Telling ourselves the truth about what is depressing us does not necessarily correct the problem, and it doesn't, but it sure sets us on the path to being able to get it corrected. So I think it's important to think about what is the kinds of things that develop into soul trouble. What is the origin of soul trouble? Why do I end up with a troubled soul? And I mentioned this earlier, just a few minutes ago, and it, it's going to come from one of two sources. It's either going to come from the physical world or it's going to come from the spiritual world. You know, at the end of the day, we are a soul. You go back and you read in Genesis chapter 2, and the Bible says that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul he became a soul he was a, it was a soul and God gave the soul a body and he gave the soul a spirit and the reason that he did that is because the body was what was going to interface with the physical world around that soul and the spirit was what gave him the capacity to interface with the spiritual world that was around. Listen, there's a spiritual world all around us today. Right in this room, there's a spiritual world present. Undoubtedly, there are the angels of God, and there's probably some of the other kind as well. They're all around. And it's the spirit of a man that gives his soul the ability to interface with the spiritual world. Well, that being the case, that means that our soul can be impacted by the physical world and by the spiritual world. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Do you see that? What, are the, what is the nature of the lust? They're fleshly lusts. That's things that are on the outside in the physical world. But what are they warring against? They're warring against the soul. They're warring against the person that we are. They're warring against our, our intellect and our emotions and our, and our volition. And it's waging war against that part of us that is critical to us having peace with God and having rest in our souls. In fact, <laughs> this idea of... Fleshly, fleshly lust is the idea of inordinate desire. It's a desire for that which is forbidden. A desire that crosses the boundary. Uh, the, a couple of biblical words that might kind of sum this idea up is the idea of a trespass. Because a trespass is to go somewhere you're not allowed to go. It might be the word transgress, which is to go farther than you ought to go. Because you realize that nearly every sin we commit has its roots in something that is perfectly legitimate and right and good if maintained within the boundaries. 
The sin enters in when we exceed the boundaries that God has put in place in respect to legitimate desires. So it's the desire for the, for the forbidden, desire that crosses the boundary. Lawful desire without restraints become fleshly lust. And the scripture says here that we're to abstain from these. The word abstain means to withhold oneself from participation, to refrain voluntarily, to withhold oneself deliberately from an action. So when it comes to fleshly lust, the things that appeal to our five senses, our hearing, our seeing, our tasting, our smelling, our touch, the things that appeal to us in the flesh, we're to abstain from those things if, if it's leading us beyond the boundary. In fact, it says here <clears throat> that those things war against the soul. This word war, <clears throat> it comes from a Greek word that means to serve in a military campaign. The idea of to go to war is derived from a Greek root word meaning uh, that brings us the idea of being encamped. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like my soul is being encamped about with temptation. We can feel that, especially if we're at a place in our life where we're struggling with such things and it seems like the struggle is always there. Well, it feels like that because it always is. There's war being waged against our soul and it comes through our fleshly lusts. In fact, the English dictionary <clears throat> defines the word war as it's being used here to make or wage war, to carry on hostilities. And that's exactly what fleshly lusts do. They are, they are a hostile opponent of our soul and the well-being of our soul and the rest of our soul. The fact of the matter is, our soul is besieged by fleshly lusts. And, you know, we get to a point every day where we kind of go through life and we just kind of accept that. And maybe we're, victory, we're having victory over it in a large way. But it doesn't change the fact that every day we're dealing with things that are waging war and they're fleshly lust. Things that, that attract our attention. Things that create temptation in our lives. And it may be something small. It may be something large. But they're always, I mean, how many times are we having to tell ourselves, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to say that. Yes, I am going to do this. Yes, I am going to do that. Well, we're having to, we're having to talk to our soul like that all the time because there's fleshly lust that's constantly waging war against our soul. Somebody with me on that? Fact of the matter is, our soul, our soul is besieged, really, when it comes down to it, by fleshly lust. And we are instructed to abstain. Well, what happens if we give in? Because we all have given in before. And what happens when we give in? What happens when we allow our soul... This is an important question. What happens when we allow our soul to be overrun by fleshly lust? There is an answer for that. And in fact, it's in 2 Peter chapter 2. Look there with me. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 <clears throat> The Bible says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Did you see that? There's a word here that's very important in the context that we're speaking this morning, and it's the word vexed. It specifically says in verse 7 that Lot was vexed with, and in verse 8, it says that he vexed his, and you go on and read, what he vexed was his righteous soul. So what is the idea of being vexed? <clears throat> well, it comes from a word that means to bring trouble or distress to. To what? To our soul. It's the idea as to subject to mental suffering to cause agitation or anxiety, to interfere with peace and quiet, of, by, or as if by encroachment. So the Bible says here in respect to, in respect to Lot in verse 7, it says, um, it says, and delivered, that is God delivered just Lot. He says he was vexed with a filthy conversation. So just see, and in fact it mentions seeing and hearing it. In seeing and hearing those things, Lot was troubled in his soul by seeing them. And he ended up having his soul, the Bible goes on and says, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul to, from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Because 
Lot, to some degree or another, and I think pretty heavily, he became involved in that culture and in that lifestyle. One of the things that lead me to believe that is just the decisions he made there at the very end when God sent the angels to deliver him. And the decisions that his daughters made after they fled from the city. This was a family that was immersed in those things and their soul was vexed because of it, particularly Lot's. Listen, I'm just saying to you this morning that when we surrender to fleshly lust, it brings trouble to our soul such as to subject it to mental suffering, causing agitation or anxiety, thus interfering with the peace and quiet because of that encroachment. Listen, and it's particularly true of believers. We cannot give in to fleshly lust and have peace in our soul. It's just not going to happen. Because it's more than just conscience when it comes to believers. It's the Holy Spirit of God living within us. It's going to convict us in respect to sin. I would say to you that the origin of soul trouble, one of them is our body, the seeing and the hearing, the fleshly lust. Another very important to consider as related to our body's impact on our, is our body's impact on our soul. Look, if you will, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want to touch on this quickly and we're going to move on, but I think it's at least important to, to, uh, to raise the issue. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, you're familiar with this passage. The Bible says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, <laughs> My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So Paul makes reference here because of the abundance of the revelation and the tendency that that would create in him to, to move in the direction of pride. Paul says, The Lord gave me a thorn in the flesh. He sent something to him that created a a sense of physical suffering in his life. In fact, he even refers to it as the messenger of Satan to buffet him. So let me just say this about that. Physical ailments can have a spiritual impact. But it ultimately comes to rest when you think about it. It ultimately comes to rest on fleshly lust. And here's why I say that. Because we want to feel good. Right? We don't want to have pain. And in fact, if we're not careful, we can even come to think we don't deserve to have pain. That we shouldn't have pain. We shouldn't be sick. But who says? Why would we draw that conclusion? Why would we think that? Listen, I'm all for reducing pain and fixing ailments and all of that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not against that. But what if God does not see fit to remove the pain? What if that's His choice? What if God intends to get glory from your pain? What if God intends to teach you things by your pain? You know, it's not like God's not interested in doing that. You know, not only do we face these spiritual troubles or these soul troubles because of the physical world, but also because of the spiritual world. Look, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, <laughs> the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand... Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. So we'll stop there. But I would just have you note from that passage that he warns us that we need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That is the, the devil and his ability and his desire to trick us, to use strategy against us, to ensnare us or to deceive us. That's why I'm saying we're not just... We're not just contending with the physical world as it presents itself. There's a spiritual world out there. And the devil is real. 
And the devil will wage battle against us, spiritual battle against us. And it's important to recognize that. In fact, you go down to verse 16, and what does he talk about there? He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wind. Listen, it's talking to saved people, not lost people. The devil is firing his darts at us. We can be, be impacted from the spiritual world. And in fact, you really don't even have to look any further than the, than the life of, and ministry of Jesus to know that that's a very, that's a very real thing. It was in his life, and it will be in ours as well. Listen, there is such a thing as the devil opposing us and the devil challenging us and the devil uh, creating things in our life to cause us to struggle. Look, if you will, in the book of James and chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, he specifically mentions there in verse 7 to resist the devil and draw nigh to God. Both of those are spiritual beings. God is a spirit. The devil created as an angel. He also is a spirit. They're both spiritual beings. At the end of the day, we've got to deal with spiritual realities in our life. Lost people, most of the time, they don't have any recognition of that. They can actually be controlled by devils, and they don't even really understand the scope and the severity of what's going on in their life. But we've got to deal with spiritual realities in our life. We've got to deal with God, who is a spiritual being. We've got to deal with the, with the, uh, with the opposition of the devil in our life, because that's a real thing. You remember in the book of Acts, Paul even talks about how that Satan had hindered him. This is a real thing that we're facing, and it can impact and affect our souls. I mean, it's very easy for us, if we're not careful, to be secular in our thinking. And when things aren't going right in the church or in our families, just to think, well, you know, this is just, this is what happens in life. Well, no, maybe the devil is driving a lot of this. Maybe the devil is actively engaged in opposing us. And then it becomes a matter of a spiritual warfare that, yes, maybe it's manifesting itself in the physical world, but the root of it is really, really spiritual. And, and there's probably a sense in which you could say that's always true. It's important to recognize that. Psalm 51, verses 10 and 11, David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You know, the reality is we don't, we don't want to allow a spiritual vacuum in our life that will give the devil opportunity. There's a reason why Paul told the church at Ephesus, Christians, believing people, neither give place to the devil. Listen, he'd have never said that if it wasn't the potential that we would do that. And I think sometimes we just go through life and we're not really conscious of the fact that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. And that a lot of the, a lot of the challenges that we face in life are directly related to spiritual warfare. And as a consequence, they get the upper hand in our life because we're not dealing with it and our soul becomes troubled. So the origin of soul trouble is, yes, the physical world, but it's also the spiritual world. And really, the root of it being a failure to maintain close fellowship with God, because we fail to do that, creating opportunity for the devil. And you know, the thing about it is, th there's a trap that gets set for the soul. And a lot of these, a lot of these the stimuli from the outside, whether it's the physical world or the spiritual world, there's a trap being set for us, and I, I thought it was interesting as I was sitting there after the pre previous sermon, your pastor even actually made reference to this idea of I, 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 it, you know, it becomes about us. I want you to look at some passages in respect to that, a couple of them, both of them are in 1 Kings. The first one is in 1 Kings chapter 19, and you, you, most of you I think will be familiar with this account, and uh Just to get you up to speed to where we're at in chapter 19, because we're going to look in verse, uh, we're going to look down in verse 10. <clears throat> this is after Elijah had, had his great victory on Mount Carmel, and, uh, and he had uh, defeated the prophets of Baal, and all the prophets of Baal, of Baal had been killed. And then you'll remember what happened. Jezebel issued a threat against Elijah, and basically threatened him with his life before the next day was up. 
And Elijah ran because of the threat of Jezebel. And the Bible says in verse 9, this is of Elijah, And he came thither into the cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? You know, it's interesting to me that God didn't come to Elijah and say, Oh, poor Elijah, I know. She said mean things to you, and I understand, and it'll be better tomorrow. Let's talk about it. That's not what the Lord said. The Lord said, what are you doing here? Why, what, what doest thou here? And notice what Elijah's response is. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Did you see the pronouns? I, 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 I. And then he goes to a cave. And you remember what happened there? The, 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 the lightning and the thunder and, and the wind. And then there was the still small voice, right? And look again. After all of that, Elijah was not moved. The Bible says in verse 14, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You know, soul, soul trouble can create eye trouble. In fact, it almost always does. You know, as I was thinking about this here with Elijah, and I have a sermon on Elijah in this regard, but I'm probably not going to preach that one this week. But, you know, the secular world has their syndromes. Well, let me give you one. The eye syndrome. When we have trouble in our soul, our soul has had a trap set for it. And we know we've been caught in the trap when we start to have eye trouble. Eye, eye, eye. Now, the, the thing about that is, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but go back one chapter to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 21 and 22. And this maybe in some respects is the very height of the expression of Elijah's power and favor with God and God's power upon him. It's there in this contest with the prophets of Baal. And notice what he says in verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said unto the people, Look what he said, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Did you see that there? Did you see what he said? Most of the time we read right past that because... He's having victory and great things are happening and God is manifesting His power. Well, let me just say to you, what wasn't much of a problem in verse eight in chapter 18 becomes a big problem in chapter 19. What wasn't so much noticeable in good times when victory was afoot, all of a sudden became a very terrible thing in bad times when discouragement set in and challenges were really there. And he began to be fearful. You know, and I, I was thinking about that, and it caused me, again, just to realize, and it cemented in my thinking, that the presence of trouble in the soul is often used of God to reveal a soul that is troubled. Because you know what? When Elijah says that, even in verse 18, he should have known that wasn't true. You know why? Because a chapter or two before that, he had met another prophet, Micah. And you remember what Micah told Elijah he had done? He had hidden a hundred prophets of the Lord. So Elijah at least knew there were a hundred and one others. And yet in the throes of victory, he says, I'm the only one. We read past it, don't think anything about it. Jezebel threatens him. And two times, you notice, he didn't change his argument one iota. In spite of how God revealed himself. You know, it just tells me, people, People can say, well, God's not done anything in my life. Well, maybe you just haven't acknowledged it. I mean, I really think that's where Elijah's at when we get to chapter 9. 
he could not say that God had not done anything in his life. God had manifested himself to Elijah, even right there in that chapter, and yet he holds on to his excuse that I'm the only one. Everybody else has forsaken you. I'm the only one. Listen, we've got to be careful about eye trouble. When we fall into that, and listen, it's easy, right? I mean, that little story I gave you about the bitterness I had on that occasion, I might not have said too much about I. I might not have used that word, that pronoun, but really, what I was making about was all about me. That's true of bitterness, and it's really true of everything else. And that's a sure sign when we find that kind of terminology or that kind of spirit manifesting itself, presenting itself in our soul and in our life, it's a sure sign that our soul has fallen prey to the trap that was set forth. So, is everybody with me to this point? So the question really becomes, okay, how do I deal with this? How do I get treatment for soul trouble? Whether it's coming from the physical world through my body or whether it's coming through the spiritual world through my spirit, it's attacking my soul. It's besieging my soul. How do I treat that? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves, what exactly are we treating? It would seem important to determine exactly what it is we're attempting to treat if we hope to make good choices here. So let's just take the secular term as a basis for thinking about this important question. The secular term would be psychology. Psychology basically comes from the Greek, that word does, and it's a compound word in the Greek. One of the words, the psyche, just means breath, spirit, soul. The other part of that compound word means the study of. In fact, the word psychologia is actually from the modern Latin in the mid-16th century. It was in 1650 where psychology was was adopted. That word began to be used in the English language. And all it means is a study of the soul. That's what psychology means. So how am I going to find treatment for my soul trouble? Well, in what context is the study of the soul likely to be more helpful? I'm going to give you two choices, because there really is only two choices. A secular context. Now, before you say, yeah, that's a great context to deal with it, let me remind you that the secular context is atheistic, evolutionary, and denies spiritual realities. So how in the world are they ever going to help me with spiritual problems? How are they ever going to help me with soul problems? That's man-centric is what it is. The other choice is a spiritual context. In other words, a context that acknowledges spiritual realities, that we're created beings, amen? We're created beings, that there's a supreme God in the universe, amen? And that's theocentric. So when it comes to treating soul problems, we can either adopt a, 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 a pattern of treatment that is man-centric or we can adopt a pattern of treatment that is God-centric, one of the two. But those are the two choices you get. Well, what about secular treatment? Let's explore this for a second. Look, if you will, in Psalm 146, verse 3. Psalm 146 and verse 3, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to the earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Listen, brethren, we should not be putting our trust in man. You don't have to read very long through any kind of psychological literature to realize that, quite frankly, they're clueless. If you look through a list of potential disorders, I think you would discover that most of them are not disorders at all, but they're simply the response of the soul to stimuli. Whether it's from the physical world through fleshly lust, or whether it's from the spiritual world, the the devil and his demons. Listen, if a person's having issues 
Because I want to be clear about this. I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. If a person's having what is generally referred to as emotional trouble, I don't really like that term. Because when you're having that kind of trouble, your emotions are working just fine. They're not not working. They're working like they're supposed to. It's really not emotional problems. That's really not the best way to describe it. But if you're having, maybe a better term is mental problems, but you know, really, really the term is, but you'll never hear this in the world, it's soul trouble. So if a person's having issues, the first thing they need to do, and listen, if I'm off on this, I'm an idiot. And your pastor is the one that knows everything. So if he corrects any of this, hey, just he's right and I'm wrong. But I'm, I'm going to give you my take on it. Because I really want to help you. If a person's having issues, the first thing they need to do is go to a medical doctor and have a battery of tests conducted to determine if there is an organic problem causing their symptoms. So you go have blood tests. Your analysis, whatever it takes, MRI, look at your brain, see if there's any tumors that's causing these mental issues that you're having. But listen, folks, this is where the rubber meets the road. After you've gone to the doctor and they run all of these tests and they say there's nothing here, everything looks fine. It's not like that never happens. Amen? That does happen. Oh, I'm, having, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm having this. I'm always full of anxiety. This or that. Well, let's run this. We run this. Spend thousands of dollars running tests. And again, I'm all for that. You should actually do that. But if all the tests come back and they can't find anything, there's no empiric, empirical test, scientific test that indicates there's anything wrong with your organic systems, then that means the cause is unseen. It can't be detected by medical test. It's otherworldly, if you will. And if the problem is unseen, listen, I want to be clear about this. That doesn't mean the symptoms are not real. I'm not denying that. I don't want anybody to walk away from me. Well, he just denies I'm having a problem. I'm, and I don't know if any of you do or not. You all might be completely soul healthy. I have no idea. But I'm not saying if you're having issues with these kinds of things that your problems aren't real. They are real. Make no mistake about that. It simply means that the cause is in the unseen realm and the unseen realm is the spiritual realm. But if the person administering the treatment has been schooled to disregard that possibility, that's not even in their wheelhouse. To even contemplate the idea that this might, you've probably got a spiritual problem. You know, that's, it's not even in their wheelhouse to think about that. Then all they're left with is attempting to medicate the person into normalcy. Drugs are the treatment of choice. You know, I, look, I looked up these statistics on the internet it's been a couple of years ago now and I looked several places and it's it's seems to be pretty wide agreement on this these particular statistics are from the CCHR it's an international mental health watchdog and in the United States I'll just cut to the chase here in the United States one out of every four people is on an antipsychotic drug that means you put four people in a room and one of them is probably on some of these kind of drugs because they're having anxiety, having, you know, all kinds of things they label it. I want to help you this week. 9.5 million are on ADHD drugs. Now, I drive a school bus. Uh, Quite frankly, it's sad. I, 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 
I honestly don't get it. Well, for one, it's not biblical, I don't believe, in the least bit. And the other thing, it doesn't even make good sense. There are going to be kids that have a hard time paying attention. There's going to be adults that have a hard time paying attention. Probably part of it is due to the, to the environment you're putting them in. And it's not suited to them. <laughs> you know, I know, I know everything I would say if I was at home, but I do want to tread lightly. I'd, I, the last thing I'd want to do is abuse this pulpit. The problem is, is that there are parents that don't want to deal with their kids. But there is a reason why you generally have kids early in life. Because you're supposed to have more energy too. You're supposed to have more bandwidth. Emotionally and, and, and all of that to kind of deal with all of the... Listen... I know about that. I've lived that life. You know, most of the people in my church now, a lot of them don't even know. They, they were not around when we had little kids. We had six kids at the house at one point. I know chaos. <laughs> I know stress when it comes to that. I know trying to manage all of that. And we had some kids that were more compliant than others, some not so much. I mean, there was, there we had six different kids, and they all six were different. And it is stressful sometimes. Man. There's 43 and a half million people on antidepressant drugs. If there's that many, there's some Christian folks on that. There's 12.5 million on antipsychotic drugs. And they really prescribe that for a whole range of things. They prescribe antipsychotic drugs not only for things like paranoia, but even for things like anxiety and depression and other things that we might consider more run-of-the-mill emotional or mental problems. 32.1 million people are on anti-anxiety drugs. And the amazing thing about this is, is that antidepressant side effects... And there's some serious side effects from these drugs. In fact, so much so that 11 countries have issued 151 warnings about these drugs. And one of the main side effects of these kinds of drugs, I mean, these drugs, you know, supposed to be helping you with depression and anxiety and those kind of things. One of the main side effects is suicide risk or suicidal behavior. Hostility or aggression, agitation, self-harm, anxiety, hallucinations, mania or psychosis, sleep problems, violence, depression, irritability. And you get all of that potentially from taking the drug. So you're taking the drug for these issues and the drug is likely to cause those issues. I just does, the world has gone stark raving mad. This does not make sense. There's a better way. It's reasonable to entertain the idea that one in four people are under the influence of Revelation 9.21 says, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Revelation 18, 23, And the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. I'm sure most of you, you're schooled in the Bible, so you understand the word sorceries. It comes from the Greek word pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy. The issue of the dispensing of drugs. I don't think, from my perspective, the problem is not when drugs are used to address organic medical issues. However, when drugs begin to be used to address inorganic problems, how is this not sorcery? And I'm just reminded of the words of the prophet Jeremiah, verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? 
Is there no place we can go to get help with our anxiety? Is there no place we can go to get help with our depression? Is there no place we can go to get help with whatever's tormenting us on the inside? Is there no place we can go to get help with our temptation and our fleshly lusts and our addictions? Is there no place we can go? Listen, when I read my Bible, my Bible tells me God delivers. He delivers. He's got power. And if there's no deliverance, it's not His fault. It's not because the Word of God is not true. Listen, I, I, I do want to be kind. But if you're wrestling with depression and potentially even suicidal thoughts, listen, if there's one thing I've learned in 32 years of pastoral ministry, everything can seem completely fine on the outside but on the inside, a person is falling apart. Is there no balm in Gilead? Are we prepared to say? Are we prepared to... Lower the flag and say, well, the Bible can't help me with this. Is that where we want to go? Is that where we want to be? Because if it can't help me with this, how do I know it can help me with this? And if I say it can't help me with this, why can't the other person say, well, it can't help me with this? And the other person, why, why can't they say, well, it can't help me with drunkenness? Well, it can't help me with gluttony. Well, it can't help me with lust. You know, we really don't have the luxury of picking and choosing here. We've either got to come down and say, yes, the Bible, the Bible can help. And God does have power. Or we've got to say it doesn't. And, and if we're going to, listen, I mean, seriously, if we're going to come to that conclusion, we might as well just walk out of this building today and not come back. Because we have no hope for the world. Listen, we probably all know people got saved and got delivered from all kinds of addictions. I'm not just creating some kind of pie-in-the-sky picture here. Like, in a perfect world, this is what... No, in a fallen world, this is what can happen. So, you know, maybe, maybe the need here is spiritual treatment. If psychology is the study of the soul, why wouldn't we consult the book that was given us, given us by the Creator to see what He has to say about our emotional problems? If the problems people have, depression and a whole host of other disorders, are unseen on an empirical scientific test, then why don't we go to the book that addresses the unseen issues, spiritual issues, issues of the soul? Let me give you some verses here and we'll be finished. Psalm 119, 25. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Psalm 119, 28. My soul melteth for heaviness. That sounds like a pretty low place. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Psalm 119, 81. My soul fainteth. Oh, oh. My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Are you getting the picture here? Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3. It's a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What? Bless the Lord, O my. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Didn't they just sing about that? Didn't the choir just sing about this? Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all His benefits. Uh, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Who healeth all thy diseases. Uh, 
Either he does or he doesn't. Listen, either we're going to believe the Bible or we're not. Either he heals all our diseases spiritually or he doesn't. I believe he does. I know he does. Psalm 147 verse 3. 1 through 3, praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise. You now people say, well, I don't feel like singing. Sing anyhow. Sing do you feel like it. It's don't quit singing till you start feeling like it. <laughs> the Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathered to gather the outcast of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up all their wounds. Listen, I've been wounded in life. Have you? But I found that I have a Savior who can bind them all up. I found that I don't have to go through life because everything hadn't turned out the way I'd hoped. Just, you know, kicking cans down the road and saying, woe is me. Wow, look how miserable my life is. Look how many disappointments I have. Look at how this is happening. I'm glad I don't have to live life that way. If I do, it's because I'm choosing to. Doesn't have to be that way. I love what David said. It was at the very end of his reign. In fact, he was speaking to Bathsheba and relating to her that Solomon was going to assume the throne at, upon his death. And in the context of communicating that to Bathsheba, the Bible says, David says in 1 Kings 1.29, As the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distresses. All you got to do is go back and read the narrative of David's, David's life. And my friend, he had some distresses. He had some distresses. And at the end of it all, he said, the Lord delivered me out of all of them. Saul hunting him for 15 years. His own son raising a rebellion again. You want to talk about distresses, amen? The agony of his sin with, uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and the, the distress of soul that that caused him. Yet he said, the Lord delivered me out of all of it. Listen, I'm telling you this morning, I'm telling you this morning that if God will do it for David, he'll do it for you. And he wants to. He would delight to do it. If we'd submit to him. I'll leave you with that. And we'll pick up after lunch, Lord willing, for the, for the demolition.